Today's episode is sponsored by Tigo. For most of us, indemnity insurance is one of our biggest costs of practice. But when was the last time you took a look at the coverage and compared your premium with others? Many of us are still with the same insurer we joined in med school or intern year. Thousands of doctors have made the switch to Tigo and benefited from their personalised approach to pricing. You will also get an extra two months free in your first year. If you are new to private practice, you might even qualify for four years of discounted premiums. Tigo offers competitive premiums, quality cover and 24-7 support backed by top medical legal advisors. Get a free quote and discover why thousands of doctors are insured by Tigo by visiting tigo.com.au. Hello listeners and welcome to Deep Breaths, a podcast covering topics related to the part two anaesthetic exam. I'm Dr. Kate Steele and I'm Dr. Kate McCrossan and today's episode is And the Healing Has Begun, where we'll discuss the PADI trial. As always, in this podcast, we represent our own views and not those of our employers or ANSCA. The PADI trial stands for the Perioperative Administration of Dexamethasone and Infection Trial and it was published in the New England Journal of Medicine on May the 6th, 2021. PADI was a true collaborative international effort with many of the authors residing right here in Australia. Now, dexamethasone, as we all know, is widely administered for the prevention of postoperative nausea and vomiting. As the trial authors state, it is inexpensive, effective and long-acting. Its immune effects, however, have led to concerns regarding its effects on postoperative surgical site infection. In fact, it has a biologic half-life of up to 72 hours. There you go. Mm. So to trial design, the PADI trial was an international multi-centre, randomised, placebo-controlled, triple-blind, non-inferiority trial. Inclusion criteria for patients were ASA 1 to 4, undergoing elective or expedited non-urgent, non-cardiac surgery with general anaesthesia and an incision length 5 centimetres or above, and an expected duration of operation over two hours with at least one night overnight stay. Exclusion criteria included time-critical surgery, a total incision length of 5 centimetres or less, or an operation associated with a primary infection, for example, removal of an infected prosthesis, or that required the use of intraoperative dexamethasone. Interestingly, patients were also excluded if they had poorly controlled diabetes mellitus, defined as an HbA1c of greater than 9%. Patients were randomised to either 8 milligrams of intravenous dexamethasone or a placebo after the induction of anaesthesia and prior to surgical incision. I actually participated in this trial in my institution. One of our research nurses would consent the patient and sort out the paperwork. We had to complete some paperwork related to the anaesthetic we'd given as well as administer a vial of study drug, which looked exactly like a vial of dexamethasone. How do you like that? (laughs) Now, the outcomes assessed were as follows. The primary outcome was the occurrence of a surgical site infection within 30 days of surgery according to CDC definitions available in the appendix of the trial publication. There were a number of secondary outcomes, including but not limited to surgical site infection categories considered separately within 30 days, the quality of recovery and the occurrence of chronic post-surgical pain. There were also many tertiary outcomes assessed, which you can find in detail in the paper itself. So the primary outcome, which was surgical site infection, was assessed in the modified intention to treat per protocol and as treated populations. 
The primary analysis was performed in the modified intention-to-treat population, which excluded patients who withdrew consent or whose clinician withdrew them from the trial, who could not receive dexamethasone or placebo because they were not available at the centre, or did not undergo eligible surgery. The PERP protocol population included the criteria I've just mentioned, as well as further excluding patients who did not receive dexamethasone or placebo, or who ended up receiving open-label glucocorticoid either intra- or post-op. All secondary and tertiary outcomes were assessed in the modified intention-to-treat population only. Patients were followed up in the post-anesthesia care unit on the first three post-operative days, at hospital discharge, and at 30 days and six months post-surgery. There were several processes to keep an eye on surgical site infections. There was also a clinical endpoint committee blinded to trial group assignments who adjudicated all primary outcome events. Now, we're not going to go into the detailed statistical setup for the trial as much as I'd love to delve into the O'Brien-Fleming function. I don't even know what that means. Yeah, so suffice (laughs) to say... 8,725 patients met the criteria for inclusion in the modified intention-to-treat population. The dexamethasone and the placebo groups had similar baseline characteristics and percentage deviation from the study protocol. Now on to the results. So in the modified intention-to-treat population, the primary outcome, which was surgical site infection within 30 days of surgery, occurred in 8.1% of the dexamethasone group and 9.1% of the placebo group, consistent with non-inferiority. The non-inferiority result extended to analysis of the per-protocol population as well as the as-treated population. Non-inferiority of dexamethasone relative to placebo was consistent across all pre-specific subgroups as well, including patients with diabetes. With regards to pre-specified safety outcomes, there were a few differences between the trial groups that we would expect. There was a larger difference in blood sugar level comparing pre-operative to maximum BSL measurement in the dexamethasone group and a higher incidence of hyperglycemic events and insulin use in patients without diabetes. The study also showed a reduction in the risk of nausea and the use of antiemetics with dexamethasone in the first 24 hours after surgery. Mm, Surprise, surprise. One unexpected outcome, however, was an apparent increase in the incidence of new onset chronic post-surgical pain with dexamethasone at an incidence of 8.7% compared to placebo at 7.1%, leading to a risk ratio of 1.23 with a risk interval not crossing 1%. The authors say in their discussion that this finding may be due to chance, but that they didn't adjust for multiplicity. Multiplicity refers to the potential inflation of the type 1 error rate as a result of multiple testing. For example, in this trial, it would be analysis of multiple outcomes. It is possible to statistically correct for multiplicity, but as a secondary outcome, as this is most often treated as exploratory and requires further investigation. So, Kate, now we've had a little chat about Patty. Do you think this trial's changed your practice in any way? Look, in truth, no. I was, I've was i always been a massive fan of dexamethasone and this is going to be a really crass way of saying it, but I tend to throw it around like lolly water because I think it's really useful. And I've always thought that the benefits far outweigh the mm. detriments to using it mm. to the point where even as a registrar, I remember distinctly drawing up dexamethasone and being ready to give it to patients with diabetes and being admonished by my consultants, mm. you know, for drawing it up. How dare I do that? And it's actually really nice to see this trial that really shows in a beautifully statistically relevant manner that dexamethasone is actually quite safe in these populations. So I'm really, I'm really pleased about these results. And in truth, 
because I was such a fan of dexamethasone, it really hasn't changed the way that I use it, but it means that I'm more confident in my use and I can actually sort of explain to surgeons when they get a little angry about its use. I, I can actually explain to them, look, here's the data. It's actually not yeah. associated with infection, mm. you know, infection mm. at surgical sites. How about you? Yeah, I mean, I'm a big fan of dexamethasone as an anti-medic as well, and mm. I think these trial results are reassuring. Mm. One thing that did strike me was how rate, how high the rate is of a surgical site infection in general. Yeah, yeah, it was surprising. Mm. I didn't appreciate mm. that it was such a common occurrence. Nearly one in ten, which I think is awfully high for what can be quite a serious complication. Mm. And in this trial, we were looking at incisions over five centimetres, so not, mm. not small. Mm. Um, I do wonder now whether efforts should be turning to interventions to try to reduce the yeah, rate of definitely. surgical site infection because yeah. the morbidity and presumably mortality of this is is huge. Yeah, and um, I mean now that dexamethasone can't be just blamed as the culprit, culprit as a routine kind of practice, mm. I think now is a really good opportunity to start looking at those other features that we can correct to try and improve that statistic because you're yeah. right, it is really high. Are there any leverage points we can kind of pull to, you know, I, th- I think, you know, the more, you know, not so much mortality but the morbidity and the cost to the health system of, mm. of surgical site infection is massive massive so mm, absolutely yeah so uh kate what have you learned in anesthesia this week well i as i'm sure you are aware and for those of you who aren't queenslanders we've just had a recent changeover with all of our anesthetic trainees mm. so we have a new bunch of fantastic trainees in our hospital at the moment i was working with one new trainee who has asked to remain nameless but he was <laughs> teaching me about a condition called Wellen syndrome that I have heard mentioned sort of fleetingly, but mm. frankly didn't really know much about. Um, and it's interesting because he, so this this trainee is post-exam and he was, he was very good at teaching me. And it's basically this clinical syndrome where on an ECG, you see biphasic or deeply inverted T waves in leads V2 and 3. Mm-hmm. Um, And typically the patient has a history of chest pain but doesn't actually have it at the time of the ECG. And this finding is really specific for a critical stenosis in the LAD or the left anterior descending artery Mm -hmm. of the coronary arteries. And it's interesting because when you actually, let's say you do a Google search of this condition and you look at the ECGs, even though I didn't know about it, it's not like you would look at the ECG and think it was normal. You still look at it and go, that's a very abnormal mm. ST segment. Mm. I just didn't appreciate that it was so specific for a critical LAD stenosis, which I actually find kind of terrifying. And I think the thing that I find the most terrifying is that these patients are pain-free mm. when they're having these ECG mm. changes, which just, ugh, you know. So, yeah, yeah. so that's what I learned. I'd heard of it, but I didn't really know what it was, so... Yeah, how do you like there that? There you go. How about you, Kate? What did you learn this week in anesthesia? Well, not nearly as technical as you, but certainly on the topic of trainees. You're on a list where I had a trainee and an intern, and they were kind of coming and going at different times. Okay. You know, so the intern was coming late because they had teaching, and then my registrar came, but then they had to go to teaching, and then oh, the gosh. intern reappeared just as the registrar. So, so it was like a revolving door. Your theatre yeah. had a revolving door. I yeah. think it just it adds to the complexity of the environment that you're in, mm. and. Uh, I think obviously there's a patient in the middle of all of this and, you know, you have to, you know, you're the point of continuity, right? In this situation, it was definitely the point of continuity. So, and then trying to pitch teaching to two different levels, you know, and one's leaving and one's coming. Mm. (laughs) It's quite challenging. And I think it adds to the difficulty uh, of the environment sometimes in public institutions where we're trying to teach and provide good education and Mm. care for, you know, patient was reasonably complex like Mm. most of ours are at the moment. So, Mm. um, yeah, just trying to keep an eye on what's important while still providing a good teaching experience. Yeah, and it's interesting interesting. because in and of itself, 
I think thinking of a way to explain something when you're teaching someone can be challenging enough when you're trying to formulate a way of making mm. them understand, mm. you know, it, at a, at a level that they're that is appropriate for them and then having to swap between that you know yeah. go back and forth yeah. between more complex versus more simple it reminds me of there are a series of videos on youtube where it's like an expert on i don't know maybe astrophysics explains what black holes are mm. at five different levels and it starts from how you would explain it to someone at kindergarten to how you would explain it to another mm. astrophysicist and it's really interesting thinking about how you you have to sort of rapidly change the way you explain things and the language you choose and the depth that you go to is like, it's actually kind of hard and it's mm. power to you while you're keeping, you know, focused on what sounds like not a particularly simple patient. Yeah. It is hard and it's, yeah. it's mentally taxing when you do it yeah. as well. Yeah, I think so. And I don't think it's always appreciated by everyone in a theatre environment, all the things you're trying to tackle. Mm. So, um, yeah, so it's just worth considering, I think. Absolutely. Thank you so much for joining us today. As always, you can contact us at deepbreathspod at gmail.com. We'd love it if you'd spread the word to follow us on your favourite podcast platform and give us a five-star rating if you like what you hear. And consultants, don't forget to claim CPD for listening today. If you know someone that you think would be a great interviewee or have a topic that you'd like us to cover, please feel free to let us know. Thanks for listening, and we hope you can join us next time on Deep Breaths. Deep Breaths.